How's everybody doing? Yeah. You can take out your Bibles. <laughs> you can open up to what's said Genesis. That's where we are. It's not what we're studying. You can open up to Judges, chapter six. We're going to attempt to accomplish an incredible feat tonight and go all the way through chapter 7. Alright? Yeah, I think we can do it. Hopefully it'll be shorter than last week. Hopefully. So, uh, so we got goals. You gotta have dreams in life. You know? Alright. Let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this uh, awesome opportunity you've given to us to get into your word. And I pray that it would be uh, beneficial for us, that you would be glorified through our time together. And Lord, that um, as we draw closer to you, that we would fall more in love with you and desire all the more to live a life that is really just pleasing to you. And so, God, I thank you. Trust all this into your hands, in your name. Amen. 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 All right. So, last week we met Gideon, and uh, Gideon kind of met the Lord. Um, being a child of Israel, he knew the Lord, knew all the stories about the Lord, was very familiar with all that. But uh, that was about the extent of his relationship with God. God to him was was uh, someone that was never around, you know, someone that had, uh, you know, abandoned him in his own thinking. And so God comes in his casual manner, sits underneath a tree, and they begin to talk. And, uh, you know, God tells him that not only had he uh, never abandoned him, but he had always been there with him and had a plan for him. And in verse 25, after Gideon confirms the conversation with the Lord, uh, God calls him, and that's where we're going to start this week, hopefully uh, just conquering a massive portion of scripture. So, you know, praise the Lord for that. So verse 25, that same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Ashtoreth bull beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar, I love that, to the Lord your God on top of this height. Uh, Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family and uh, the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So Where does God call Gideon first? It's an interesting thing to consider, right? Where is it that that God, you know, after Gideon goes through all this work of confirming this is an authentic communication with the creator of heaven and earth, and and he's got that, he knows it, he's sure of it, and then God says, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I have a work for you to start there. And... uh, isn't that uh, the way that it always seems to work? You know, the, the, the first place that the, the Lord would send us is, is just very simple. He just says, go home. 
your, your father needs you. He needs to hear from you. He needs to talk with you. He needs to encounter me in the same way that you just have. He needs to see the reality of me because uh, the reality of Israel in that day is that they hadn't abandoned the Lord altogether. You know, the God of the Bible had just become another one of the gods in their community. So they knew about the Lord. And in their own terribly corrupted way, they worshipped the Lord. But they worshipped him right alongside all these heretical idols. And, you know, since God isn't going to share us with any other gods, he says, you need to go home. They don't know me. They don't know the the reality of 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 following me and having a relationship with me that is truly pleasing to me, you need to start there. You need to go home. You can imagine Gideon, because Gideon knows the world that he lives in. He can see the severity of the problems of his community. You saw it in chapter 6, the first uh, six verses there. He goes, what about Midian? And these people are everywhere, and they're terrible. They're, they're destroying our crops. They're slaughtering our animals. I mean, that's the real problem. And you can imagine God just saying, you know, just go home. Midianites will still be there tomorrow. Your father needs you today. You need to go home. You know, I got saved, and uh, and when I was a, a new believer, you know, you have that that new believer zeal, and it's all like zeal, no knowledge. And um, and I just, I really, I wanted to go to China and smuggle Bibles into China. And then turn, come to find out, the LA Times wrote an article on that. Do you read the skill? He seemed like the type of person that would, that, that China is the number one. Yeah, they 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 print more Bibles than anyone else, and their own people can get it. I'm like, why, are, why, why would I want to do that? Anyways, but I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to smuggle Bibles into China. And, uh, and, and then I, I, really, I, I really wanted to go to Australia and work with YWAM. I had a friend uh, out there. He worked with YWAM, Youth with a Mission. I wanted to go to, to Africa and convert the Muslims. Because I'm like, you know, they've just, this is what they've been waiting for. They've just been waiting for a Christian to go out there, someone just like me. You know, and it's like, that's, that's all, it's, this, you know, problem solved. Just, uh, you know, give me my passport and send me on out there. It's like, boom. What Muslims? You know, and it's, uh, I could take care of that. But my dad, he wasn't a Christian. My mom wasn't a Christian. My brother wasn't a Christian. Everyone in my extended family, they weren't Christians, except for my grandma. And, you know, one day, the Lord impressed upon my heart. It's like, how can you have so much compassion for the world and not care about your family? And it broke my heart to consider that. And, and I must have appeared to them to be such a hypocrite beyond measure. You know, I had this great heart to go out and save the world. And I wouldn't go home to talk to my own family about these things. And the, the, the arrogance uh, that it must have appeared to them to be. And, and now uh, everyone in my family, except for my father, uh, is a Christian. And my grandma uh, is, is now in heaven. She got to see all of their conversions. Uh, but this is where you start. We start where Gideon started, and it's in the home. It's our first mission field. And it's the only one, if you'll accept it as, as true, 
that you don't have a choice in the matter of. You know, I don't want to debate uh, God's sovereignty and our free will. We'll leave that for another message, right? Some people are like, you don't have any choices in life. Everything God's, you know, you're just uh, you're just doing what God has preordained for you to do. And other people are like, no, it's all you. You choose whatever you want to do. Okay, well, that's not what I want to, want to talk about. Well, one of the areas you, you can say for sure that you don't have a choice in is what family you got. You know, you're born into it, and then these people are born to you. It's not like you get to choose that. So for sure, God wanted you to be a part of that. You know, if anything's for sure, it's that. That's you know, one of the few things that you can say, well, out of all the ministries that God has set before me, out of all the possibilities to serve him amongst others, this is the one that I know without a shadow of a doubt I've been called to because I was created into it and geographically I'm stuck in it. This is the reality uh, of it. And, and this is this is what God wants you to do. Now, I can understand Gideon because still at this stage, he's a little bit fearful about it. And uh, and that's why he goes at night. Right. I, I've done street evangelism in uh, in Vienna. Right. And, and that wasn't that bad. Most of them didn't speak English. So it was it was actually pretty easy. Uh, you know, you walk up to someone, you're like, hey, you know, do you know the Lord or whatever, however you do your, your street evangelism pitch, if you do street evangelism. And it's like, hey, you know, you know the Lord, and they're like, you know, what? But it's in German, you know, and I don't know what, what is in German. I, I didn't bother to learn that. And uh, But they would say that, and they would start, you know, saying something to me, and I'd be like, okay, so this conversation is over, and then I'd feel good about myself because I just reached out to them. <laughs> but it didn't, didn't pan out. But it was very easy to do. Even if they did speak English, well, I remember I was I was doing street evangelism, and I'm terrible with it, and which is why I don't do it. Uh, but there was someone, he was he was sitting on the steps, and we were at a university, and I didn't know what I was doing, so uh, I didn't know how to open up a conversation with a complete stranger in this situation. He was wearing a hat, so I walked up to him, and I was like, I like your hat. And he thought that I was flirting with him. And it, and it led to a really awkward conversation where I tried to get back to how I was a Christian, and I wasn't just interested in him physically. Um, but it was easy because when am I ever going to run into these people again? Right? You ne never. I'm probably never going to go back to Vienna, Austria. I was there for a week. And that was our purpose. And I went out there and I did that and then I came home. But when am I going to run into my family? It constantly. And it's terrifying when you extend yourself in that way with these people because... They're the people that you're more familiar with, with anybody. And, and a lot of times we're reluctant to enter into this call of Gideon at the initial phase of our ministry and the initial phase of our service to, to Christ uh, because there's this level of transparency there with our family. And, and, you know, these are the people that know you more than anybody else in the world is ever going to know you. And they know where you've been, you know, they, they know where you are now. They, they know everything that, that took you from A to B. And, and I remember sharing with my father and he was like, I used to change your diapers. Who do you think you are telling me that, that I'm wrong? You know, and I remember, uh, you know, sh sharing with my mom and she was like, you know, I, I used to buy you booze when you were in the fifth grade. Who are you? Who are you to tell me? That, that, that you know better than me. And I remember sharing with my brother. And he would say, 
hey, we, we've lit fields on fire together. You know, we, we, we've made napalm with one another. Who are you to tell me? Who are you to tell me? It's a simple recipe. We'll talk about it later. Who are you to tell me that, that, that I need Christianity? You're just like me. And there's this level of transparency that makes it very fearful. There could also be very easily this obstacle of animosity that enters into the whole equation. You know, because of the, the hurt and everything you've been through with these people, there could be this reluctance to share with them. Well, you know, I, I, I can't share with my mom. She's always been cruel to me. She's always been short with me. She's not kind to me. And it could be your father, and he's always been distant from me. You know, it could be your children, and well, well they never listen to me anyways. They're always off doing their own thing, and, and who knows what they're up to. And there could be these obstacles to overcome, but nonetheless, we still need to hear the voice of God as it came to Gideon, as it comes to us in the same manner that just says, you need to go home. You need to start there. This is where you begin your Christian ministry, because this is the one Christian ministry that you can be sure that you're called to. This is what God sets before him, and it's this test for Gideon, after Gideon has tested God so many times already. They say, now are you going to be obedient to me in this small thing before I set before you all these greater things? And Gideon was. He passed the test. He was fearful, but still obedient. And in verse 28, in the, same, or in the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, with the Ashtoreth pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull uh, sacrificed on the newly built altar. And they asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die, because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Ashtoreth pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, and are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jeroboam, saying, Let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. It's amazing to see the change in Gideon's father already. Last night the guy was a pagan. He was an idolater. And... Through the simple act of, of seeing uh, his idols cut down and helpless, his eyes were open and he was converted in the morning. You know, it's uh, and the whole community comes together and it's this big thing and, and they're like, you know, bring bring Gideon out. We got to kill him on behalf of these statues that are lifeless and broken on the ground. And Gideon's father has this brilliant idea. And he just says, hey, well, you know, if they're gods, they just got knocked down. Let them defend themselves. Let them stand up against Gideon. Let them punish Gideon for what Gideon did if they have it with them, uh, within them, the power to do so. You know, if our gods can be so easily discarded, maybe they're not wor worth worshiping in the first place. And I love what uh, David Guzik says in his commentary here. He has a story. He says, South Seas in the 19th century 
one tribal chief was converted to Christianity and he gathered up all the idols of his people and he told the idols that he was going to destroy them. You know, so he gets all the idols together. He's like, idols, I'm going to destroy you. And then he gives them a chance to run away. All right? He's like, there, that's the door. You can make your move. I'll give you a head start. And he decided that to be merciful, he would only destroy the ones that sat before him like dumb statues. And it's brilliant. If Baal is really God, then he could defend himself. We don't have to do it for him. It's not just Gideon's father. You could see the eyes of the community starting to open up. And now it's going to spread to the country. In verse 33, now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan, camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Bezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, Nephtali, so that they too went up uh, to meet them. We're going to pause there for a second. So the house converted, spreads to the community, converted, spreads to the country, all amassed together, gathered before Gideon. God entrusted him with a little. Now it's obviously a lot. We're going to see in the next chapter, uh, in the second verse, that 32,000 people had come to Gideon at this point. That's a lot of people. 32,000 people. The Lord has drawn them all. They were sick of living under Midian's evil oppression. All it took, right, was for one guy to get up to kick over an idol and cut down a pole. And then he gets his little trumpet out, blows his little trumpet, 32,000 people come to him. Now, I don't know about you, right? There's some guys, uh, and I know several of them, right? Uh, and, and probably Sam is more like this guy, right? But I told you that I identify with Gideon, um, so I'm going to use Sam as the example of the opposite of Gideon, right? Which is a good thing in this passage. He was hard on me all week, making fun of me via text message. But I'm going to still be gentle with him. I'll leave that between him and the Lord. Um, but there are some guys, right, they blow their trumpet. 32,000 people come to them. They're all standing around. They're like, let's go get Midian. And they would, they would go for it. They would be pumped. You would be, you would be hard-pressed to stop them, to slow them down. Because that's just the type of people they are. You know, they, they'd just be excited. They'd be like, let's go do it. God is in it. Let's go conquer. Uh, I, I'm much more like Gideon. Um, 32,000 people came to me when I blew a trumpet. I'm, I'm going to probably be having cold sweats. And, and that's a lot of pressure. 32,000 people at 64,000 eyes. They're all looking at me, and they're like, hey, so you blew the trumpet. You're the leader. You're the guy. You have the vision. What do we do? What's the next move? Where do I go? What, 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 can, what can I help with? How do you, how do you organize us? Do something. And I'm going to be like, uh, I, I, I need to be over here for a minute. I, I need to step aside for a minute, have my panic attack, and uh, take my tongues and talk to the Lord. And that's exactly what Gideon does in verse 36. It's this moment where he kind of steps aside and 32,000 people uh, watching him, he cries out to God. And Gideon said to God, 
if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, this is a good time to remind God that he's already promised you stuff. That's right. All these people are here. You're still going to do it, right? Look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece, wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. It's a good way to start a prayer. Please don't be mad at me. Uh, let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with this fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night God did so, only the fleece was dry, all the ground was covered with dew. Now, the first test should have been enough, right? But the second test tells us a lot about Gideon, doesn't it? And here was a man who had truly weak faith. But right, weak faith is better than no faith at all. And I think a lot of people in this situation wouldn't be able to live up to the challenge of it. And this is a daunting task set before Gideon. Here he has an enemy uh, that's in the opposition to him. And we know from chapter 6, how big are they? Who can count them? They're innumerable. That's what chapter 6 says. At the end of chapter 7, it's going to say that they're as numerous as the sands of the sea. I mean, that's a lot of bad guys. And are these well-equipped bad guys? Yeah, they're the guys on the camels. And these camels are military-trained, perfect for desert warfare. This is what the opposition is against Gideon. And I think in that situation, some of us might have weak faith. But I think most of us would have no faith at all in the situation, to be honest with you. Most of us would run back to the cave and be hiding in the shadows again with everybody else in Israel because that was easier to do. That's a common figure of speech in the Christian community, and maybe you've heard it. Uh, I remember hearing it for the first time as a new believer and thinking that Christians are just the strangest lot of folks. Um, but a common figure of speech in Christianese is to say that you're laying out a fleece for something, and I'm sure you're all... Uh, familiar with this to one degree or another. People say that they're laying out a fleece and, and they're, they're putting uh, out a test for God. They're leaving the results up to God for God to make his will very clear to us, to show us uh, either miraculously or practically which direction that we're to go. And this is where uh, that figure of speech comes from. Corinne and I, uh, we, were in, uh, we were in Balboa on our anniversary uh, last weekend, and it was wonderful. If you're ever in Balboa, it's a nice place. You know, uh, they have a nice little island there. And uh, But I remember we, we would see these signs, and they would say things like, Balboa, the greatest place on earth. And, you know, you'd see this, and you'd be like, well, I don't know. I, I, I think God's trying to tell us something. I think God is calling us to Balboa because, you know, the greatest place on earth is the center of God's will. And, you know... But it's like, who wouldn't want to live in Balboa? Let's be realistic. I mean, that's, Balboa is a wonderful, peaceful place. And some people, they're always looking for a sign to validate what they want to do so that they can justify it with something greater than themselves. Right? At Bible college, guys would walk up to girls in the Christian cafe 
And, and you know, if a girl would be reading their Bible, they'd be like, oh, so you're doing your devotions in Isaiah too. That's what I'm doing. Do you think God's trying to tell us something with that? I don't know. I think it's a little more than a coincidence there. I think maybe we're trying, maybe the Lord's trying to put us together. Maybe we should study the Bible together. Just the two of us. I got some candles. You know, and it's like, they're, they're reaching and they're throwing God in there to try and validate their own will. And, and that's not what Gideon was doing. Actually, Gideon was doing the exact opposite of that when you really think about it. He wasn't trying to validate his own will in this situation. What do you think Gideon's will would have been in this situation? It probably would have been for God to say, no, Gideon, I was just kidding. I'm really calling that guy. The guy that's like bigger, stronger, more well-prepared, and the guy that's really got it together and knows what he's doing, knows how to handle a sword and everything. Gideon was looking for a way out in this. You know, it, it reminds me of uh, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. His prayer was, not my will, but thy will be done. And, and this was Gideon's fleece as he laid it out before the Lord. There was something big and scary that he didn't want to do. It was not his will to do it. And after the first test, Gideon still found a little bit of his will there. And it probably would have been enough will left in the equation for him to not go through with what he felt like God was calling him to do. So the second test was necessary to fully convince him that God wanted him to move forward when, according to his own will, he just wanted to completely run away. But there's a word of warning in here as it applies to our uh, Christian community. To beware of seeking a fleece that justifies yourself and then crediting that to God. Because this is the way that Christians use the concept of laying out a fleece today. It's not what Gideon was doing, but that is what we often do. The lesson here to pull out of the concept of laying out a fleece is really to be willing to do whatever it is that God would reveal to you that he desires for you to do. Even when it's not something that you necessarily want to do or feel like you can do. And, and it's a difficult thing to do. You know, we talked about this a little bit last week uh, with George Mueller and his first step to determining the will of God for your life. And his first step was to empty yourself of your own desires. And he said, this being done, you'll be able to understand what it is that God wants you to do. Oftentimes, because we don't do that, we lay out the fleece to only validate a positive answer from God, which we've already determined in our own heart. So it's not an authentic fleece, and it's not an authentic test. We're simply looking for anything to say, this is it, go forward. And then we feel validated, we move forward. Gideon did it twice because he didn't get what he wanted but he got exactly what it was that God wanted him to do, which is the true aim, true goal of the fleece in the first place. We're doing excellent on time. Let's continue in chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all, the, all his men camped at the spring of Herod, the camp of Midian, was north of them in the valley near the hill of Merah. 
maybe. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back, leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Now, I think God allowed the second fleece in Gideon's test because if he hadn't, Gideon would have probably left in this first group, right? Because it's true. He was trembling with fear. But now Gideon can see two-thirds, a little bit more than two-thirds of his men leave, and he could still stay. Because although these guys left, he knew that God hadn't. God was still with them. He was convinced uh, and, and, and confident. And so he moves forward. God would say, I've made myself very clear to you. It has to be more than numbers with you. Right? And I think this is where maybe we get hung up a lot of times. Right? And, and especially with finances and then things of a practical nature. We look at it and we can say, okay, I have this many people. I can accomplish this goal. And God says, okay, let's get rid of most of those people. And then you think, well, now I can't accomplish this goal. But God was still in it. God was calling him to move forward in it. And God was with him. So 22,000 left, 10,000 stayed. The wonderful thing to consider here, the thing that, uh, that I could always lighten my heart with, is, is that God doesn't punish those people that leave. And does he? No, I mean, God doesn't strike them down as soon as they walk away. It's not like some divine trick in the passage. God's like, if you're afraid, you can leave. And the minute they turn around, they all burst into flames. You know, that's that's not what God does. You can go home and you can take a, a less a less comfortable uh, or a more comfortable road in life. Um, and God's not going to stop you from doing that. But these people that walk down this difficult road with Gideon, they're choosing a path that is uh, understandably uncomfortable. And, and it is frightening. Uh, but it's also something that's truly glorious um, to serve the Lord in, in these difficult ways uh, during difficult days. But it's a choice. It's always going to be a choice. And they made it. And God did, doesn't force us to serve him. Uh, he's, he's not going to strike us dead. If we, if we if we choose to walk away from a situation, uh, if you want to, you can go. And many of them left. And it's sad, but that's the way it is. The interesting thing about it is that even with more than two-thirds of them leaving, it wasn't enough for God. Um, so God says in verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, there, there's still too many men. You know, two-thirds of them just left. There's still too many. We're up against an innumerable army. Yeah, there's still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, then he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths, all the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, 
but kept the 300 uh, who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So God, God divides the men into two groups. Okay, there's one that are going to kneel and drink, and the second are going to lap up the water like a dog. And that's what he says. Right, out of 10,000 men, 9,700 kneel, and 300 lap up the water like a dog. And can you guess which one Gideon was hoping God would choose? Right, if you see this hugely disproportionate number, you're like, okay, well, there's 9,700 guys over here. I think maybe I could do it with these guys. And then there's these 300 dog guys over here. You know, maybe, maybe send them back to the tents. Um, God chooses the dogs instead of the guys that knelt. And, and, and it's maybe for the simple purpose that when God uses dogs, he gets the glory for it. You know, uh, I think the words of Zechariah 4.6 uh, could be enough commentary here. Zechariah 4.6, a verse that I'm sure you're all familiar with. It says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And God stripped them down twice. So they couldn't say, you know, when it was all said and done, well, this is, this is by my might. I'm just so strong. It's by my power. I'm glad I worked out once in my life. You know, and then that's, that's why it got done. You know, that's, that's how we accomplished this whole thing. No, I mean, when it was all said and done, they could only say it had to have been the Spirit of God that intervened. It had to have been some, some divine presence that, that our God, the true and living God, went in with us to battle, and all they had was clay statues and poles. And the true and living God won the day. And you know, I mean, we think that we have resources and we have plans. We have manpower. We got it together. And, and, and we can make a real difference now. And what did Israel have? What did Israel have? They had too much. They had so much that God couldn't use them. And the fact of the matter is that the enemy isn't going to be conquered by, by PowerPoints. It isn't going to be conquered by, you know, Gibson guitars. It's not going to be something that's won over by exquisite eloquence. It's not something that's going to be brought down uh, by the, the, the money of the American church today. It's not a problem that we can conquer through any other means than by the Spirit of God and through those that are dependent on the Spirit of God. And so God strips his people until that's all they have and all they can count on. And continuing the latter portion of verse 8, it says, Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. And during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they're saying afterwards you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples settled in the valley, thick as locusts. The camels could no more be counted, counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. 
I had a dream, he was saying, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, and it struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed, and his friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Then Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation. He worshipped God, and he returned to his, the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Wonderful text there. Right, it's, 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 you know, he jumps up and he's like, this is it. You know, and he's excited. Uh, but, but you can see that he wasn't there at the beginning of the passage. He was still, despite everything else, very much so afraid. You know, so much so that God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the victory. I'm gonna reveal it to you. I'm gonna make it very clear to you. If you're still afraid, you can take this guy Pura with you. What do you notice? What, 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 what did Gideon do? First choice he had. It's it's like the next verse. And him and Pura, they went down there. I mean, it doesn't say, doesn't say it, but you know it. You get it. He's still, despite everything, he's still terrified. And and so God d- decides to uh, to to give Gideon this glimpse behind the the divine curtain. And I love this passage because there's so much that God is always doing in all the ways that He's always working that we're completely ignorant about. You know, we have this idea that God is working when I'm working because I, you know, I'm filled with the Spirit of God, you know, and all this. And and so God is working when I'm working with God. God is working when, when if we're working or if we're not working. God is always working. He's always doing something. And, and Gideon gets to see behind this curtain. He gets to experience the, the untainted, pure work of God. When God's just doing it by himself, God's preparing the path for Gideon to experience this great victory. Gideon sees this, all the fear is instantly gone. He runs back to the camp. He says, get up! This is it! We've got to do it! His faith is increased beyond measure. And for the first time, you can imagine, he, he's seeing these 300 guys. And for the first time, they're more than an insufficient army. They're an awesome tool in the hands of the Almighty. He says, let's go, let's do this. And in verse 16, we continue. Dividing 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. He's sounding like a leader all of a sudden. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now here's the question. Where did Gideon get this plan? It's from where? Yeah. Now, other things like this have been done in the Bible. This is actually pretty similar to uh, Abraham's plan. If you read in the book of, uh, in the book of Genesis where he attacks Sodom. Right? Uh, there are some similarities. But was Gideon ever told by God to do this? You actually don't see that in the story. And, and, and that's why I, I love this text because it, it's so confusing to me when you get to know the person of Gideon. I mean, Gideon asked for confirmation around every corner. And God was talking to him, 
And, 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 and here's a guy that, that is, is such a logical thinker, such a, a born pragmatist that he doesn't even trust God when he's talking to him face to face. He says, okay, God, if this is really God, prove that you're God. God has to prove to him that he's God. It's a conversation. He's not even asking him to do anything yet. I mean, so God has to prove to him then he has to, he, he has to ensure him that, that Gideon is going to be the, the one that's used. He has to reveal to him that, that the enemy is going to be defeated by him, but never God never told Gideon that this is how it was supposed to be done. And Gideon never asks God how he was supposed to do it. The very moment that this has all been leading up to. And Gideon just goes for it. You know, I I think that this might have been another time, to be honest with you, that I would have probably stopped and pulled away from the guys and been like, okay, God, I'm ready. I'm excited. What do you want me to do? But Gideon just has this wonderful moment of inspiration, just filled with the spirit of God, you know, and, and he just moves in faith. He doesn't question it. And there's times in our life when everything is just very clear and God confirms it. He makes it obvious. You know, he might as well pop out of the clouds with a hammer and hit you on top of the head and say, this is very clearly what I want you to do. I shared one of those stories with you last week. You know, it was this time and nothing had ever been more clear to me in my entire life. But there's other times, like with Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, sharing the story of Abraham. And God says to Abraham, I want you to go. And guess what? I'm not going to tell you where. So Abraham just has to leave. He has to leave in faith. And it's not so clear about the direction, but it's clear with the inspiration. And so the only thing you can do is just trust and move. And God say, okay, Gideon, this is what I want you to do. This is how you're going to win the battle. I'm not so sure that that ever happened. We don't see that happening in the Bible. But is this what God wanted him to do? I'm pretty sure that it was. Right? And there's a sense of development and maturity in Gideon at this stage of his Christianity, where he's not looking for confirmation around every corner, where he doesn't need to stop and, and check after every step. He's just being gently steered by the Lord and guided down this perfect path. You know, work, um, I'm a, I'm a, I'll give you the, the professional title because it makes me sound smarter. I'm a remedial education specialist, right? So, um, so I'm a tutor and I, <laughs> and, and I work with kids and, and every hour we get an eight minute break and it has to be exactly eight minutes. Otherwise I get yelled at. Um, but <laughs> every, every hour we get one eight minute break right in the middle and uh, we call it a brain break because the place I work at is called the, the brain zone. And, and when the kids come in, we do a brain gym and we do brain builders. It's all, it's all relevant to the brain, right? You get that idea. But during our brain break, it's eight minutes. One of my favorite things to do is the elevated balance beam. It's about two inches off the ground and, uh, and it's held up on these legs that are bowed so that when you stand on it, it wobbles. And, uh, but it's only two inches off the ground, so no one's going to die. Let's be realistic. Uh, but it's about four feet long, and the kids step on it, they walk across it, 
they get to the end and they say, that was easy, let's do something different. But it's my favorite activity because I can make it really difficult for them. So I tell them to go back to the beginning, step back on it, but this time I want you to do it with your eyes closed. And so that's what they do. They close their eyes and they start walking across it. It starts wobbling. And as soon as the board starts wobbling back and forth, uh, I, I always know it and they always do it. They always start peeking, you know, and, and so they're, they're kind of closing their eyes, but you know, it's, you know, they're, they're, there's a little, there's a little opening there and I can tell that they're looking at the board and, and so they're really just cheating as they're walking across, but I let them do it because they all do it, right? I tell them to go back to the beginning. So they walk around, they go back to the beginning. And then I say, okay, I want you to do it again, but this time I want you to put your head all the way up and close your eyes. Right? So even if you do cheat at this point, it's not going to help you because you can't look at your feet. So they start walking across. They got their head up, which completely throws off their equilibrium. And they got their eyes closed so they can't see their feet. And every single time they do the same exact thing. They, they all uh, get on it, heads up, eyes closed. They take one step. The board starts wobbling. And they stop, and they say, am I close to the end? And I say, you've only taken one step. You're nowhere near the end. And so eyes still close, head still up. They take another step. It wobbles again. And they say, are you going to tell me when I'm at the end? And I say, of course I'm going to tell you you're at the end. You're doing a great job. Just keep on doing what you're doing. And so eyes up, head closed. They take another micro step forward, feel it wobbling. They start falling. I put up an arm, and I catch them, and I say, just stay on the board. You're doing a great job. Keep on going. And eventually they get to the end. And they haven't fallen. And I tell them to go back to the beginning and do the exact same thing, only this time do it backwards. And so the head's up, eyes closed. They're walking backwards. But the thing that's different this time, and it's always the same, is that they're not asking me if they're about to fall. And they're not asking me if they're at the end. This time they're just trusting me and walking because they know from the first time that I'm not going to let them fall. They know that I'm going to help them to the end. They know that I'm going to be with them throughout the entire blind ordeal. And you know, a lot of times it's like that when we're walking with the Lord. You know, it was like that for Abraham in Hebrews 11, 8. God just said, you know, start walking and don't worry about it. I'm going to be here with you. I'm going to get you to the end. I'm going to get you to where you need to be. Just go and trust me. And in the maturity that develops in a person that begins to take those steps is that you don't need to stop every second. Like Gideon was stopping around every corner and freaking out. Like my kids freak out when they're on the balance beam. Like, ah, God, are you going to let me fall? Are you going to let me die? It's all going to be terrible and dismal and dark. And No, I'm here with you. And that's what you need to know to get through it. That's all you need to know. And so you progress in it. I love watching, uh, you know, people that have known the Lord for a number of years. Actually, uh, when I first got saved, I was... Um, I don't know how honest I should be. <laughs> when I first got saved, I was I was really just a dark human being. And I came out of a really dark place. Um, and no one at the youth group wanted to hang out with me, you know. Um, 
So I hung out with my grandma because she was the one Christian. And my grandma was part of the Hilltop Saints. You know, it's all the old folks. They all sit around and drink tea and talk about God and everything. And, and I would love seeing these people go through what they would go through because they would face some of the heaviest things I could ever imagine in life. And yet for so many of them that have known the Lord for so long, it wouldn't rock their boat. Things that would absolutely knock me off the board and I would go tumbling down to the ground. And it wouldn't have that effect on them. And they would just keep on going because they've known the Lord their entire lives. And they love the Lord. And in the maturity of the latter years of their Christianity, they had this type of faith as Gideon displays in this chapter where they can just walk with the Lord, be so naturally guided by the Lord, and just be in, inherently confident that he's going to be there around every corner. He's not going to make a mistake despite the circumstances of our life. We're going to continue, or we're going to wrap it up. we got seven minutes. I could do it. Trust me. Trust, trust me. There's 19. And Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had charged or changed the guard. And they blew their trumpets, broke their jars uh, that were in their hands, and the three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hand, holding in their right hand the trumpets they were to blow. And they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 uh, trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And the army fled to Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Avel. Mehalbor, why not? Near Taboth, Israelites uh, from Nephtali and Asher and all of Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, "Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Beth Barash." Beth Barash. So all the men of Ephraim were called out. And they took to the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. And they also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zaib. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zaib at the winepress of Zaib. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zaib to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. And again, um, you just you know why I love this book. It's uh, it's wonderfully graphic at every opportunity. But, but here you have Gideon, and, and he just wants the whole nation to be a part of this victory. He's just, you know, excited by what God is doing. So he starts calling everyone out. He's like, hey, you know, come out. You got to see this. You got to be a part of this. You got to, you got to, we got to join together in this. And, and, and they, they, you know, and, and all they had to do, you know, was some, smash some jars. And God brought the victory because God had already gone before them. He had already sown the, this sense of fear and terror. Uh, and then the enemy camp, and they turned on each other. They began to attack each other, and then they just ran away, and they were hunted down. And 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 this week, we're going to leave Gideon here uh, by this great river, uh, a severed head in in each hand. Uh, th there's no greater picture of of <laughs> of absolute victory over the enemy than uh, than a guy that's just got you know a fistful of heads. And uh, he's, he's just gloriously bloody, uh, walking in the maturity of the latter 
stages of his Christianity, uh, seeing the reality of his ever-present Lord working uh, in plain sight. And, and there's, a, there's a part of me that wishes that the story uh, would end here for Gideon. Um, but it actually doesn't, and next week we'll consider that as we consider uh, the, the, the conclusion of Gideon's story. And it's not that dissimilar from Solomon's, actually. So we'll go ahead and do that. We'll close in a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had together. Lord, I ask, uh, ask your blessing on each one that was here today that your word found a place in our hearts, whether it was to go home and in the confidence of our calling to that mission field to be sure that we're supposed to be there and to be used by you there, that we would step in to all that you would have for us there. Lord, maybe it's seeking the wrong kind of confirmation for the life that we want to live, the choices that we want to make. We pray, Lord, that we would just be open to whatever it is that you have, knowing that it's always going to be more glorious than anything we could ever imagine for ourselves. Lord, what a sad thing it would have been if Gideon's fear got the best of him and he ran back into the caves and hid in the shadows once again. Lord, maybe it's just stepping into a stage of our Christianity where in maturity we just trust you and we just step forward with you and we're just willing to be, you know, guided by you very naturally. And so I praise you, Lord. I ask God that uh, that you would go with us, and Lord, that you would that you would use us, Lord. And you're still the same that was with Gideon. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us in your name. We pray. Amen. Amen.